um, is an active duty U.S. Army military intelligence officer who is serving as executive officer for the Intelligence and Security Command Headquarters. Uh, he is an alumnus of the Institute, and he was our valedictorian uh, for the class of 2017, which is quite an achievement because he has a had a lot of very serious competition. Uh, Andrew's previous assignments include two deployments to Afghanistan as an infantry platoon leader and an assistant brigade intelligence officer and service as the battalion intelligence officer for the 1st Battalion, 509th Parachute Infantry Regiment. Um, Andrew is terrific, and he has been participating actively in some of our other very major public events. Last week we had our Chancellor's Council meeting where uh, supporters from around the country came here to hear presentations by our faculty and alumni. And, uh, and, and um, uh, Andrew has been involved in, in making these types of public presentations, and, and we're just delighted that he can. And the breadth of his expertise the, uh, is, is remarkable, the, 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 the different territory he covers, and I just would like to welcome Andrew to the, to the podium uh, with gratitude for your many contributions to the country and to this school. Sir. So I am a bit at a loss. Okay. So. While we, we take care of this, I'll just let you know that um, I'm not here in an official capacity in any way. Uh, I'm wearing this because I just left the AUSA conference and I didn't have time to get changed. Um, so nothing that I say is uh, government policy or army policy or the views of the DOD. It is strictly my um, opinions as a private citizen. You got it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There it is, there it is. Okay, so um, the article that I had published was about uh, the reconnaissance techniques between uh, Germany and the, the, uh, the Tsarist Russian Empire on the Eastern Front during World War I. Um, I chose the topic because, uh, partly because it's not terribly popular among World War I scholarship, we gravitate toward the Western Front because we know it better. There's more things there in English. Uh, it's it was more widely covered uh, to the American eye, and it had more. Uh, it was just a higher profile event. But on the Eastern Front, uh, there were a lot of valuable and important things that we saw and observed that are uh, that I think are critical to remember a hundred years later. So first, some things to get out of the way is the differences between the Eastern Front and the West, because the wars were not the same between the two of them. On the Western Front, we held we saw a 300-mile front between um, northern France almost down to the Alps. Uh, it was mostly static. Uh, everyone, you sort of knew where the enemy was, so figuring out where he was uh, was not as important as when he was going to attack and when, where he was going to mass his effects. The Eastern Front was about a, more than 1,000 miles, and it spanned from uh, 
East Prussia all the way to almost to Moscow past the Pripyat marches. And the, sh the front shifted um, about 100 miles in total over the course of the war because the gains that you could achieve uh, over that were much more significant than you could achieve in the West. We saw the war of movement and maneuver that the Western armies wanted to have in the West, what the Germans wanted to accomplish with the Schlieffen plan but couldn't because they ran into the French fortifications. Um, they could do a lot more of that in the East, but it still remained uh, as indecisive there as in the West. So we'll talk about the um, relative differences between the organizations that fought in the Eastern Front. And I'm going to cover three major military operations. The first I'm going to talk about is the, uh, the Battle of Tannenberg, which was not an accurate name. It was actually near Olsztyn, Poland. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Um, it was at, at Olsztyn, Poland, and then immediately followed by the Battle of the Masurian Lakes. They're technically, they're treated as two battles, but I see them as one continuous military action. The second is the Gorlice Tarnow Offensive of 1915, and then the last I'm gonna cover is the, the Brusilov Offensive uh, of 1916. So the Russians, if we look at how they organized as an intelligence gathering force, they, <clears throat> they, were the, they had a lot of potential and you'd, one would think that they could have done much better than they did. But there were some reasons for their, um, for their incapability or their reduced capability as an intelligence force. They had the largest cavalry force in Europe going into the war in 1914 because they had um, divisions and divisions and armies of Cossacks and the Cossacks formed almost all of their cavalry and were well suited to scouting missions, but they were never uh, employed as such. Uh, the Tsarist uh, or, the, or the Tsardom uh, had long experience with strategic intelligence gathering and they had done so um, effectively during the what we call the Great Game period, the contest between them and the British for dominance of Central Asia. Uh, they had aggressive intelligence collection operations throughout Central Asia and facilitated their rapid expansion during the, the 19th century. And they had a general staff department, uh, the fifth department of the general staff, as I recall, which was devoted to uh, analysis and clandestine collection. Uh, they generally did very well. They, could, uh, they had already assessed, they knew of the Schlieffen plan um, by the time that the Germans were going to execute it. But they had some uh, issues with complacency and they had some spectacular intelligence failures, um, most importantly, the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. Uh, and so the, the intelligence apparatus that the Russians brought to the First World War was the reformed, uh, fairly new organizations from the lessons they learned from the Russo-Japanese War uh, they had, as I said, they had effective strategic intelligence going into World War World War One, and they could have con they could have sustained this. However, they fell into a trap of of optimism because they expected it to be a short war, as everyone did, and they disbanded their intelligence staffs and sent all of those officers to the front because they thought they would be more useful as infantry platoon leaders, uh, not really platoon leaders, but uh, tactical commanders to drive towards Berlin quickly. They thought it would be more useful than having them conduct intelligence. And when the war didn't go as they expected to, they paid for it. When you look at how they organized their uh, intelligence uh, capabilities, you see they, they organized it for an outdated form of warfare. 
the, the military culture that Russian, that Russian officers had was largely formed from the Napoleonic era. They expected to clash on a, on a field of battle and they were going to bring their massed cavalry and deliver a decisive flanking maneuver and crush the enemy completely as they wanted to do back in the 1800s and it simply wasn't viable anymore. So when you look at how this is organized, you see this is a, an army formation uh, at the top there and that which is an organization that they brought to field in, let's say in Tannenberg, they had 230,000 people in an army sized formation. And that commander is the one who had control of the intelligence assets. So it centralized at this very high level and they had massed all of these capabilities together. The same was true for their air force. They had the second largest, I think the set, one of the largest uh, air forces in Europe at the time. A lot of it was French built uh, equipment. And like the cavalry, they also centralized it uh, as being direct uh, support to the army level. As I'll flip through the Germans, you'll see that they, they approach this in a completely different organizational fashion. But what this shows you is that all the decisions, all of the important decisions of, of tactics and of operations reside at the army level because all of that information is flowing up to his staff and not to subordinate staffs. So this is sort of what uh, Russian, what some of their intel capabilities looked like. Uh, what you see on the top left is an Anasol D5. It's a French-made uh, aircraft. A lot of their aircraft were French. Uh, on the right, uh, not an original picture, but probably one of the, the best um, the best resolutions that I've seen. It, that is a Grigoryevich M5 flying boat. It's built out of wood and fabric, and it was one of their uh, most popular reconnaissance planes. On the bottom of the pictures, you see uh, various Cossack cavalry organizations. So the German order of battle was for, for Tannenberg and representative of how they approached uh, operations was they had decentralized their intelligence capabilities. They had a smaller force than the Russians in every way. They had a smaller air force, they had smaller cavalry, where they pushed these things down to lower echelons and empowered subordinate commanders to make decisions so that that information was filtering up rather than going to the top and then being pushed down. Their air force was one of the smallest in Europe at the time, uh, but it was just the most well employed. And you can see uh, here the army level formation is at the top. This is the German Eighth Army as it fought at Tannenberg. So the top block is the is the Eighth Army uh, command. Uh, right below it, you see some aviation capabilities. But now you look below at the division level. Each division commander has his own aviation battalion, and then every each, or corps level has his aviation battalion. And then at the division level below corps, which is this third, this third row here, each of them has a cavalry battalion that can support their operations. And so they're, they're, this reflects an officer and a military culture that was much more oriented toward detailed and scientific planning, um, generally better educated uh, throughout the ranks. And whereas the Russians saw the, the importance of the decisive element in war to the Russian officer of 1914 was the human element. It was his valor and his readiness to charge the enemy. For the German, uh, that was important, but as in, perhaps as important was how well he was supplied, how well the plan was put together, and uh, did they know what to do, which is an entirely different uh, set of problems if you're very brave but you don't exactly know what to do. 
So you see, these are the, the some of the German capabilities that they brought to bear. In the top left, you see a, a fairly typical um, observation balloon. That's a manned uh, platform, so you can see the basket right here. On the top right, you see uh, German cavalry. On the top left, that was on the top right is German cavalry about 1914, 1915, early in the war. On the bottom left is late in the war, so you can see the more advanced helmets. They're wearing the gas mask. And then on the bottom right is one of their most successful aircraft of the of the war. It's, it's called the uh, Etrich Rumpelstraube. It was perhaps the first stealth aircraft. You don't see it in this picture, but it was built with materials that happened to be rather translucent. So if you were a ground observation and you looked up to see this, it was much harder to see than most other aircraft at the time. Uh, this aircraft was devoted almost entirely to observation. It was a monoplane. It didn't carry arms, but it did carry cameras. And, it's, and um, from what I read, it seemed to have pretty good uh, flight time because it was comparatively light in relation to others. So intelligence in general in World War I, uh, this was true for both the East and the Western Front, is that one of your primary source of intelligence was human, and it specifically came from prisoner debriefings. Uh, second form of human that you would get would be cavalry, uh, and also reporting from your scouts, and they would be positioned forward in static observation posts. And these posts, usually for the infantry, they were um, redoubts dug forward um, as close to the enemy as you could get so they could listen and observe without hopefully being shot. Aircraft at first in World War II were also a human system, believe it or not, because in 1914 it was quite rare to put a camera in an aircraft. So they would send up aircraft with scouts and the scouts would observe what they saw and then try to remember it and then come back down and then tell the commander what they saw. And it's something that I thought it was kind of amusing a hundred years later is one of uh, uh, von Hindenburg's memoirs. He talks about at one point leading up to Tannenberg, they had to wait. They couldn't get rapid information from their aircraft because the scouts had hypothermia and they had to wait for them to warm up before they could produce any actionable intelligence, which, which is... Uh, rather bizarre if it's you'd think an aircraft could see or at least radio down but they didn't even have radios in the planes at the time and then observation balloons were critical so they provided much better station time than your air than your fixed wing aircraft um, they were better suited for holding cameras at least initially and early in the war they were they were relatively safe from being shot down and that changed later as the the balloons became more targetable as as uh, equipment became better and finally World War I was the dawn of SIGINT, and I'm going to talk about here at Tannenberg, SIGINT was uh, decisive in the Germans' ability to defeat the Russians. And it was, I would venture to say it may have been the first um, SIGINT battle uh, in recorded history. So, I'll get, so right now what you're looking at is the situation map of Tannenberg. And so what happened in Tannenberg, briefly, is that the Russians quickly mobilized in 1914 and invaded East Prussia. Their, their goal was to get to Berlin as quickly as possible before the Germans could prepare because they were expecting the Germans to be embroiled in the Schlieffen Plan. The, Germ the, uh, the German commander of the Eighth Army saw this and as they are, uh, as the Russians were, were charging west, he's, he, he fell back. And he was later re relieved, one of the first people to be fired over telephone uh, he was relieved by von Moltke because he was he didn't put up much of a fight and did not stop the Russians. The Russians 
did not prepare for this battle. They just mobilized their forces and and moved as quickly as possible without providing for their logistics. And so the speed surprised the Germans, but as soon as the Germans turned around and engaged the Russians, their offensive fell apart. And so one of the things that they that the Germans did successfully at Tannenberg is as they retrograded from The second reason is that they had um, wisely employed a former defense attaché to support the 8th Army, and he knew the commanders that were fighting at Tannenberg, and knew that uh, the commander that was defeated first, Samsonov, and the commander that they defeated second, Renenkamp, hated each other because they had a spat uh, some 20 years before at Shenyang at the Battle at the Battle of Mukden. And so the Germans knew that one or their commanders knew that one would not support the other and they confirmed it through radio so they could destroy the second army in detail and then pursue them at the Battle of Masurian Lakes and destroy them there. So this is what you see is the, the Germans and you see the, the bottom left picture and the bottom right. They are preparing their, their uh, defenses. The Russians approach very much like this uh, in mass and trying to, to move as quickly as possible. And when you run in mass into a trench system, both prepared and hasty, then you're probably going to lose. Mm -hmm. 
one other thing that I'll mention about um, about the the operation is that it was known at the time that deception would be important in radio traffic, but the Russians didn't do it. Uh, they simply they knew it, would, it could be used against them, but their officer culture, as I going back to what I said before about planning in detail, they did not expect that deception would be necessary. And the strangest thing is that the Germans had to make a gut call. Von Ludendorff had to make a, a call in his gut based on, it was too good to be true. Could I really believe that these people were handing me all this information? But they determined, partly because of their defense attache, his name was Max Hoffman, uh, the one who observed the two generals fight at Mukden 20 years before. He said that based on, on what he had seen before, the psychology of their professional force is that it likely had not occurred to them to do deception for this battle. So they made the call that they would exploit it, and it, it paid off. So the result of that battle is that the Germans suffered uh, probably at most around 30,000 casualties, and we know that the Russians suffered around 370,000 casualties. So pretty decisive, uh, pretty decisive loss on the on the behalf of the Russians. So and that ended. Uh, so that was toward the end of 1914. In winter of 1914, going to 1915, uh, the Eastern Front had settled into a more static state of affairs, similar to the West. And uh, the Germans decided that this would not uh, this would not be acceptable. They were going to break through these lines. And in 1915, they launched the Gorlice Tarnoff offensive. And Friedrich von Mack, or August von Mackensen was the commander that led that operation. And it was, uh, first it was notable because it began with the largest artillery bombardment in history up to that point. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the, the scale of the, of the artillery bombardment was um, a success that they had not seen in World War I at that point. It had eviscerated the Russians' defenses to the extent that the Russians were causing their own casualties as they tried to, to flee the battle because they were tripping over their own fortifications and they were surrendering en masse uh, after this first artillery bombardment. They were able to, to, to reinforce themselves and the Gorlice Tarnoff offensive continued for that entire spring and summer season. Uh, but at the end of this offensive, let's see, I got my notes backwards. At the end of this offensive, uh, the Germans had inflicted almost a million Russian casualties and captured uh, 850,000 Russian prisoners of war. And what we saw in this is a, is a bit of an evolution in the Germans' approach to intelligence. What we saw in the battles of Tannenberg was that German intelligence focused on identifying massed formations uh, of the Russians so that they could destroy these formations. In Gorlice Tarnoff, they were pinpointing key capabilities that the Russians had, so command posts, artillery positions, uh, communications nodes. They were identifying those and then targeting those. Even in these mass bombardments, the bombardments focused on where they could remove key capabilities. And this was, an, as I said, an evolution from targeting uh, to cause mass attrition. Uh, there was a protracted, uh, what you could call, intelligence preparation of the battlefield for this. Now, the Germans used those balloons that I, that I showed you earlier to identify these positions, report them, and then build methodically uh, enemy situation maps as to where they would aim their artillery. So, 
So some pictures of the from the the Gorlich Tarnoff offensive. This is this is not uh, the cannon. These are not artillery from Gorlich Tarnoff, but it was artillery of this kind. Those are the ones that you see there were firing on Premschel, uh, but they would have been moved forward. Those are probably those are. Uh, I would say uh, at least division level artillery pieces, not necessarily the smaller ones. But you can see very large uh, ordnance was coming toward the Russians. Or you can see on the bottom left is the Russians surrendering and carrying their machine guns on little leashes. And then finally you see perhaps the best dressed officer in history, was, that's August von Mackensen. And so this, uh, this map didn't turn out so well. Uh, the last one I'll cover is the Brusilov Offensive which began in 1916, and this represented the point at which the Russians had learned of their, they had learned from their intelligence failures and reformed their, reformed their, one, their organization and their approach to collecting intelligence. So this was the first time in the First World War that we saw the Russians conduct deliberate intelligence planning to support a, a planned offensive. Uh, the Russians used, um, they used prisoners of war to gather information as to where the Austro-Hungarian forces were located, uh, and the German forces. Uh, they, co they corroborated this with uh, overhead imagery that they collected from their, from their aircraft and from, from balloons. And they also they used um, comment deception and SIGINT for the first time in their experience in the war. So I'll run briefly with you how this, how this offensive worked, is that um, the Russians, or Specifically, uh, Alexei Brusilov commanded the Ninth uh, Russian Army, uh, the Ninth Russian Army Group, in the uh, on the southwest corner, or on the southeast corner of the Eastern Front, and this generally stretched from Romania up until to uh, roughly to southern Poland. And what he was going to do is he was going to open up a a uh, wide range of attacks along this entire front, not massed on a single point in advance, which was the, the typical World War I approach. He was going to develop a situation along a broad front, identify weakness, and then mass his forces where he saw the opportunity. And when he did this, he was going to pass forces through, and then when he opens the, the Austro-Hungarian front, he was going to envelop them from the side and then collapse the Austro-Hungarian lines. To the north of him were, were two more Russian generals. Uh, one of them was Kuropotkin, the other one was Evert. And they were also supposed to coordinate their attacks following his, so that they would, uh, the Central Powers would see a failure in the, south, in the southeast. They would react to it. They would leave openings for Kuropotkin and Evert to exploit. Uh, those two generals did not do that. But what worked in favor of Alexei Brusilov was, first, he had learned from his uh, prisoners of war that the Austro-Hungarians were fixated on Italy at the time. They were not going to, uh, at the time of the offensive, they were not going to be adequately prepared for a massive Russian offensive. Uh, he was able to, to discern that the Austro-Hungarian military culture was rather complacent, was more interested at attending social events. So they were not in a position to, to react and provide command and control when things were going to go south uh, during that operation. And... They probably knew that the Austro-Hungarians were collecting intelligence because the Russians conducted full-scale rehearsals. They built replicas of the trenches that they were going to, to cross. They did 
very similar things to what our uh, special forces did in 2011 before they went to kill Osama bin Laden. They had full-scale replicas of where they were going to attack. These were visible from overhead. If you put up collection assets, you would have seen it. Uh, the Austro-Hungarians, they found out later, had the information, but it was either not acted upon or it was not analyzed correctly. And so the, the result of, of this was when the Russians opened up their, their wide front, they prepped this with comet deception. They told uh, the Russians that they were going to attack at locations where they didn't, and where they did attack, they focused um, on, on seizing the terrain of Covell, which was a large uh, railroad intersection. Uh, that was where their decisive, uh, in, their decisive point was going to be, and that's where they massed forces. They gained about 50 miles of terrain in this, which was staggering uh, in World War I up to that point. However, the thing that saved uh, the Central Powers from the success of the, of the offensive was, first, Alexei Brusilov uh, once again missed, or for his career it was, un, it was uh, uncharacteristic, but the Russians once again had misused their cavalry. And once they had achieved this penetration of the Austro-Hungarian lines, they didn't send cavalry forward to exploit it. Finally, they became fixated on capturing Kovel, and the Central Powers continued to reinforce Kovel. The flagging Austro-Hungarian lines received reinforcements from the Germans, who were much better fighters, and Kovel became a nut that was not going to crack. However, the Russians continued to fixate on it. So at the end of this, of, of the Brusilov offensive, we saw that the, the Russians had inflicted over a million and a half German and Austro-Hungarian casualties, had half a million prisoners of war and gained 50 miles of territory at, at its widest point. You see that's uh, Alexei Brusilov. Uh, down below you see, uh, in the bottom left, you see one of the trenches that the Russians were using. If you compare it to what you saw on the Western Front, these are not uh, hasty, these are not deliberate trenches. They were hastily dug, reinforced with wicker, not not wood or metal, as we saw in in the West. And then on the, on the right side, you see both uh, Russian forces preparing to go over the top and receiving briefings. So some lessons we can observe that are still relevant a uh, hundred years after uh, World War One. And there's still things that we, that we tackle. And one thing I, I'm just going to say is lessons observed. That's a very British way of saying it because the position is that we don't really learn lessons as, as groups of people. So the first was the importance of decentralization. And whenever we get these new, uh, these new capabilities, there is a desire to give it to the highest or most powerful uh, element in that formation. And it's especially relevant when you have a very sensitive capability because it can't be widely known. Um, however, decentralizing it, as much as the risk of its, of its uh, compromise grows, it has to be balanced with what is the benefit that comes from sending that to lower levels. Uh, kind of a, a corollary to the decentralization argument is what we saw is in terms of innovation, is that the most important innovations that we saw in World War I were those which started in the field at the tactical level and, and uh, rose like a tide rather than those which were imposed from the top, uh, from, from the highest levels. And much of that innovation that was imposed upon them was proven to be irrelevant as technology caught, or as doctrine caught up to technology and doctrine was uh, rendered uh, obsolete. Uh, another thing we can learn is that defense attaches can be curiously useful in ways that you never expected. And 
In most militaries, a defense attache is a more senior person, and they don't usually return back to the tactical army. But the story of Max Hoffman, who observed the Russians fighting amongst themselves 20 years ago, provided valuable advice to his commander, is that there's if you can send someone to a, to a theater of conflict to know the people that we're going to fight, and then bring that back to the tactical level, it's, it's immensely powerful. The problem was that we don't really know which theaters we're fighting in today are going to become uh, next major military operations. And there's political sensitivities because uh, defense attaches that are observing conflicts, let's say in Ukraine or in Syria, if they get killed in the fighting, um, it's, a, it's questionable whether or not the political will exists to, to do that and to, to follow up with that if it does happen. Uh, what we saw with the Germans was that they're, they used their capabilities flexibly, especially cavalry. Uh, cavalry was still seen at the turn of the 20th century, it was still seen as the decisive force among most of Europe. They were going to use that to charge and close with and destroy the enemy. The Germans did not use their cavalry for that purpose and they learned early on that it was best employed as a scouting formation. Uh, and in Tannenberg it provided essential information that allowed them, combined with their SIGINT, to see where the Russians were approaching so that they could mask their effects. Uh, the Russians did not do this, they stuck to that doctrine, even as late as 1916. And that leads me to my final point, is that older capabilities, even if they are obsolete, can still be useful. So cavalry remained useful, although not as useful as it was before, but was critical. And we learned this lesson in, or I won't say we learned this, but we experienced this lesson in 2001 and 2003 as we tried to reconstitute our human formations in the army after having what about 10 to 15 years where SIGINT and ELINT was the, was the primary driver of operations. So that is all that I have.